Today's date is August the 31st. It is about 3.10 in the afternoon, Central Time. And currently in the Gulf of Mexico, Hurricane Gustav is gaining force and uh, making a beeline for the coast of New Orleans. This is almost three years uh, after uh, Hurricane Katrina uh, devastated that city and uh, uh, wreaked uh, chaos um, one of my close friends, uh, Dr. Norman McSwain, who's Chief of Trauma and Professor of Surgery at Tulane uh, uh, University and, and Chief of Trauma at Ch- Charity Hospital, was um, held down at Charity Hospital uh, following the aftermath of Katrina and lived through a, a rather uh, uh, amazing tale of a city in chaos and a county hospital trying to provide care uh, way beyond uh, their capacity. In the days that followed, uh, Dr. McSwain and I were able to talk from telephone from Charity Hospital uh, here to, to Nashville, and we actually uh, watched as um, a coordinated attempt to not only rescue the, the uh, care providers uh, at Charity Hospital, but also several patients uh, that were there following the hurricane. What I'm going to do today is a little bit unusual. I'm going to talk about uh, mass casualty incidents. And I'm going to combine this on two podcasts that I do. Um, I do what's called ICU rounds or surgery ICU rounds, which is a podcast directed at in-hospital hospital care providers that are providing care to the critically injured patient. It's listened to not only by doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, but also pre-hospital providers and paramedics. We're also going to cross-post this on the podcast, phtlspodcast.com which is Pre-Hospital Trauma Life Support, which is an educational program designed uh, for pre-hospital providers to extend the principles of advanced trauma life, uh, uh, advanced trauma life support uh, to the pre-hospital arena. It is a uh, widely successful program. I'm privileged to be one of the medical directors of that program and one of the editors, uh, and there's over half a million providers uh, in 40 countries. I'm going to talk about um, um, preparation for mass casualties in this podcast. And in the podcast that follow this, I'm going to do what's called Dispatch New Orleans. Dr. Norm Swain, who is uh, the editor-in-chief of PHTLS and, as I've already mentioned, a good friend, uh, is a trauma surgeon in New Orleans, and he is considered essential personnel, and he is there uh, in plain and there during Gustav. And I've already received several dispatches on the buildup of the storm and the hospital in preparation. And we're going to post those on both of these uh, websites. I think it will be educational and interesting. It will be educational in the respect that you can see real-time uh, what people are doing to prepare for such a disaster and the allocation of resources, people, and uh, uh, trying to uh, plan a sustained operation. And certainly it will be interesting. So on to the lecture from PHTLS. Um, first of all, it, disaster planning isn't something that is necessarily relegated for people who live in Manhattan or areas of uh, perhaps terrorist and threat. I think that's what uh, a lot of disaster planning has uh, been focused on, certainly after uh, 9-11. But uh, a disaster certainly can occur at any uh, location, um, whether you have an airport, uh, uh, highways that are transporting hazardous materials and trucks, uh, water and rail systems, again, delivering hazardous materials. And certainly you have the acts of God, such as an earthquake, tornado, and something like this as a hurricane. I live in central Tennessee in Nashville, and we have a, a military base close to us, Fort Campbell. There could be something accidental happen there. Um, 
uh, was in uh, University of North Carolina, and there was a horrible crash at the Pope Air Force Base that resulted in a mass casualty incident uh, when um, dozens of uh, soldiers found themselves with severe burns. Agriculture certainly poses some certain risks in regards to mass casualty. Uh, chemicals such as ammonium, phosphate, and fertilizers uh, are toxic and certainly uh, can be explosives. Uh, exp- explosive. If you're in an area where there's state government involved or federal government, those are attractive uh, targets for people who actually want to intentionally do harm for individuals. Uh, our uh, friends around the world, uh, Israelis, have lived through a tremendous amount of uh, mass casualty incidents uh, in regards to acts of terrorism, and we've been able to learn a great deal uh, from their experience. A disaster, whether it be something like a storm like Gustav, a tornado, or a... Um, something as horrible as the World Trade Center, has been broken down into uh, uh, cycles. And those cycles really help us get a handle onto what is the uh, objective or focus at that point in time. There's the first cycle, it's called the quiescent level. And the quiescent level is kind of the inter-disaster period. And, and this is you know, what's going on in most of our communities every single day. Um, and we, we think that we're not having a disaster, but some might argue you're in this quiescent level. This is your inter-disaster period. It's really a time that you should be doing your risk assessment, developing your plans, testing them, and getting them implemented. Do you have a disaster plan? Is it, does it work? Is your disaster plan reasonable and realistic? And then comes the prodrome phase, and that's the, the warning phase. This is really what we're in right now with Gustav. Uh, we know there is a hurricane that, that is in the Gulf of Mexico. We know that this hurricane is going to make landfall somewhere um, on the southern coast of the United States, and with it is going to be a significant amount of damage and uh, injuries. This is the prodrome phase. Other examples of a prodrome phase, uh, we just recently had the Democratic Convention here in the United States, and we're supposed to be having the Republican Convention. Those are uh, political conventions. There was predicted to be some civil unrest with those events. Uh, if you were a city planner in the state, uh, the city of Denver, you knew that that was a, a event that was going to occur. There might be some problems with that, and therefore it was a specific event that was identified. It was an inevitable, and that was a prodrome phase. What you want to do during the prodrome phase is, prodrome phase is take steps to mitigate the effects of the ensuing events. And when we listen to Dr. McSwain's podcast, we are hearing things that they are doing, recognizing they're in the prodrome phase, and certainly taking events to to brace themselves to be able to deal with this mass casualty uh, personally, professionally, and as well as to be able to meet their clinical mission. Other examples might be fortifying uh, physical structures. And you've seen certainly people who have taken plywood and then reinf- uh, put it over the windows of their houses. Evacuations are currently underway in the city of New Orleans. And this is an example of a prodrome phase activity. Mobilizing public health resources, making sure the hospitals are adequately staffed. Do they have enough diesel fuel if that's what they're running their generators from? Are they having enough communications array? Identifying essential and non-essential personnel. And currently at this point in time, um, that is what uh, uh, the folks in New Orleans are, depending on when you listen to this podcast. Um, next is the impact phase, and that's the presentation of actual event. In the case of the hurricane, it's when the hurricane is going to make landfall. This is Sunday, um, August the 31st. They're predicting that the uh, hurricane will make landfall on Monday, September 1st. That would be the impact phase. Often little bit can be done to alter the actual impact or outcome of what is occurring. You can't control a hurricane, a tornado, or a riot. Uh, but hopefully by adequate quiescent planning and prodrome planning, you can react appropriately to the impact phase. 
Following the impact phase will be the rescue phase. And um, the rescue phase is uh, defined as time immediately after impact during which a response occurs. Now, appropriate management and intervention during the rescue phase can save lives. Following the, the rescue phase is the recovery phase, and that's the period of reconstruction. That's certainly the longest period. I would say up to the development of the storm Gustav, we would say that um, the city of New Orleans was not in really a prodrome phase, but they were actually in a recovery phase. They were still recovering from Hurricane Katrina three years ago, uh, where they had to uh, rebuild the city, rebuild their infrastructure, try to redevelop uh, the hospitals and the trauma centers. And now, while they're in that recovery phase, here comes another potential disaster for which they're going to have to respond. This brings us up to what we really want to talk about, and that's the mass casualty incident. And how do you manage a mass casualty incident? Well, a mass casualty incident is, has a definition that the, they are events that cause casualties in numbers large enough to overwhelm the medical and public health services of an affected community. Now, certainly if you're in a large city and you're well endowed with uh, medical resources and monies, you could handle a much larger event without being overwhelmed versus a small rural community which may have, say, only a 20-bed hospital and two or three physicians. Furthermore, a hospital's ability to deal with a mass casualty event will change with a period of time. I am blessed to work at a world-class medical center who has all the buttons and bells and gizmos and has a large medical staff. But what would happen to our ability to respond to a large number of casualties should we lose power, should we lose water, should we have problems with access? If 40 or 50% of our staff didn't come in because of something like a, a SARS or an avian flu or there was a tornado and a hurricane and they were taking care of their own uh, families, this that, that very last notion, taking care of their own families is why uh, groups like the uh, FEMO, for those of you who aren't in the United States, that's the Federal Emergency Management Agency. It's an agency in the United States that responds to emergencies, uh, says that, that really in order to be a, a adequate emergency provider, an emergency, you have to take the measures to plan for disasters at home so you know that your family are taken care of. Now, today's disaster risk may result in an austere environment, and certainly in the case of New Orleans, and we know from what Dr. McSwain and his colleagues at Charity Hospital endured following Katrina, they were certainly practicing in an austere environment. They had no water. They had uh, limited amounts of food. They had no power. Uh, the only communication they had was a single telephone. And so what you would do in a normal operations is certainly curtailed. And the definition of an austere environment is a setting where resources, transportation, and other economic environments impose severe constraints on the availability and adequacy of immediate care for the population in need. So certainly when you're taking care of somebody in an austere environment, following something like a mass casualty incident, like a hurricane, the level of care in which you provided is certainly changed than you would in your day-to-day -day operations. Therefore, if you're a provider, you're going to have to change the way you practice. Certainly everybody coming in Complaining of abdominal pain in, in the United States uh, seems to get a CAT scan to make sure they don't have an appendicitis. We have become, uh, in the last 10 to 15 years, totally incapable of diagnosing an appendicitis without a CAT scan. Blow in a hurricane, overwhelm your emergency rooms, take away your, your power, you might have to actually make a diagnosis of uh, an appendicitis using something as draconian as a physical exam. 
Now, what are the medical concerns associated with a mass casualty incident? Well, certainly search and rescue, triage and missile stabilization, definitive medical care, and then evacuation. It's a very spoke-like um, um, movement of patients, and you have to be mindful that patients need to keep moving in a unilateral direction. If you are in New Orleans right now, both roads of the highway, We've got, you know, usually under normal operations, you've got one lane of the highway that goes into the city and one lane of the highway that goes out of the city. Right now, both lanes are in what they call counter flow. Both of those highways are moving out of town. You need to look at movement of patients through the medical system in a mass casualty incident as the same way. Patients in a normal emergency room may go from the waiting room to the emergency room to x-ray, back to the emergency room, maybe over to get another test, back to the emergency room, and then up to the floor. Not in a mass casualty incident. There's only one way the patients are going to move, and that's downstream. Search and rescue is going to be beyond the scope of what we're doing here. I will talk a little bit about how uh, some, some very principal elements of search and rescue. Triage and initial stabilization is often um, done, in, in my opinion, not correctly. Certainly, uh, the American College of Surgeons has a course called uh, Disaster Management and Emergency Preparedness. Jeff Hammond, who is a trauma surgeon on New Jersey, runs that for the American College of Surgeons. And uh, they have some uh, very um, interesting uh, concepts of triage, who should do it, and they make perfect sense. And we'll talk about that. Definitive medical care, somebody needs an operation, they get it. And an evacuation to a hospital away from uh, the disaster is uh, obviously um, uh, self-evident. The public health concerns following a mass casualty incident certainly were the uh, mentioned and they you know, are probably uh, pretty uh, obvious to most people. Uh, water, uh, food, are you going to have enough uh, food not only for your patients but for your staff? Um, we saw this with Katrina, the, the folks in the hospital uh, basically will live in the hospital and so certainly you're not getting additional supplies and you have to also feed your patients and your staff. Shelter, uh, does the building become safe? Do you need to evacuate the hospital to another facility, perhaps a parking garage? Sanitation, if there's no water, you know, what are you going to do with the sewage? Um, blood, uh, um, all the other things that go with running a hospital. Security and safety, that seems on, in everyday operations uh, for a hospital, security may not seem like the highest priority, but you know, how do you keep your hospital from being overrun? Uh, we saw this with Katrina. Uh, hospitals are the ivory towers of a community. People go there when they know they can get help. Some of that help may not be medical, and if you get overrun by people who need help, food, water, sanitation, uh, and they look to the hospital for those basic elements, you are going to be impaired by your ability, uh, you're going to be impaired uh, by your inability, I should say, to provide medical care, which people's lives will depend on. Transportation, how do you get supplies into hospitals? How do you get supplies or patients out of the hospital? Um, most patients, most hospitals, I should say, in the United States have gone to what's called just-in-time inventory. And I don't want to go into the business principles of that. And the business principles make sense, but most hospitals have reduced the amount of inventories they have dramatically. So if they need a particular type of bandage, they keep just the right number of bandages in that hospital to get them through a day or two. And the truck comes just as they're running out. And that way they, they save a lot of money so they're not putting capital into things sitting on a shelf. Well, what does that do to their ability to respond to a mass casualty incident where instead of taking care of 10 patients with a particular problem, you're taking care of 100 uh, patients with a particular problem where you need that particular bandage? 
And now you've got this ten times fold of increase in patients, but now you don't have the delivery of the trucks because the truck drivers, they're not, they're with their families. They evacuated the city. The roads are down. The trucks aren't working. And then what do you do for uh, supplies under those situations? Communications are going to fail. Communications are going to fail. Communications are going to fail. No matter what kind of system you have, telephones, radios, Nextel phones, whatever, cell phone towers are going to go down, batteries will run out, phone cor- phones will become non-functional. So you need multiple types of communication arrays and build-in redundancies. Endemic and epidemic diseases, uh, not really, I didn't want to make this a talk on things like avian flu and pandemic flu, but certainly even after something like a hurricane, where you have problems with sanitation and so forth, endemic and epidemic diseases become uh, an obvious concern. There's something called the incident command system, and those of you who are in pre-hospital care or the fire service of the military understand this and get this. Physicians and surgeons, not so much, because you know, if I'm if I walk into an operating room, I'm in command. That's my world. That's my sphere of influence, and what I say typically goes. The problem is. Most surgeons have the exact same opinion of themselves. And so when we step out of the operating room, we still think that we're in command. Uh, there's a joke that says if you ask a, a surgeon named the world's three best surgeons, they'll be hard-pressed to give you two additional names after their own. Um, but be mindful that when you're dealing with an incident, a mass casualty incident, you're going to have multiple different agencies that are going to respond Fire department, police, coast guard, military, hospitals, public safety, uh, utility companies. And how do you keep all those people working in concert? Uh, we know, uh, we saw this with Katrina. We know that a lot of these folks are going to have different radio frequencies and fo- so forth. The incident command system was recreated to allow different types of agencies to work together and multiple jurisdictions to work together using a common organizational structure and a language in response to the disaster. We go back to using Katrina as a template. Following Katrina, there was fire and rescue personnel in New Orleans from Chicago and New York and Indiana. And so they had to have a single unified command system in which they can order and get things done uh, effectively. And part of the breakdown we knew after Katrina, so in some part, was because the incident command system was not um, respected. Um, the incident command system must be started early before an incident gets out of control. Um, and and I, I've seen with internal disasters with hospitals, this is perhaps something that doesn't get done frequently enough, is that administrators are uh, afraid or reluctant to say this is an emergency, let's activate the emergency operations center and let's initiate our incident command because you have to express, I am in charge, I am in control, this is the way we're going to do things. We need a single unified chain of command. Now medical and public health responders are often used to working independently and therefore you need to implement the incident command management structures to better respond to a mass, uh, a mass casualty system. And an incident command system can be used for any event. We're talking here about Hurricane Gustav, we've talking about problems that we saw with Katrina, tornado, whatever, but if you're moving a hospital uh, from an old building to a new building, uh, here in uh, Tennessee, uh, we had um, up in a, a town called Clarksville on the Tennessee-Kentucky border, uh, they just built a beautiful new hospital. They moved all their patients from the old hospital to the new hospital. Well, for that, the hospital administrators a- activated their uh, emergency center implemented the incident command system, and they used that for movement of patients. It wasn't an emergency. It was a planned event on a nice day, and they had to control the situation. Uh, but that's another example of using the incident command system. 
Starts when the disaster demands more resources than you are locally available. Uh, disaster will interfere with the ability to continue normal operations. Uh, for instance, uh, if your emergency room is overwhelmed, uh, somebody with a hazardous material comes in and they've closed your emergency room, you have an internal disaster, for instance, your water goes down, your steam goes down. The other thing about incident command system that's important to remember is what are the functional requirements, not hierarchical or titles. Just because you've got 17 initials behind your name doesn't mean that you should be the guy who's the triage officer or you should be the incident commander. It's functional. What can a particular person do under that disaster situation and, again, under an austere environment? Now, the classic incident command system uh, you can find on a lot of websites, uh, but you have an incident commander, and in a hospital you'll have a, a chief physician officer and a liaison officer and emergency coordinator, security officers, but there's basic fundamental groups that uh, need to remain. Logistics, planning, finance, operations, and information. And all of those basically report up to an incident commander. So logistics, how do we get supplies? How do we move patients? How do we make the machinery of a hospital work? The planning officer, uh, the, the folks... Finance officer is the person who uh, basically pays the bills. We need money to mobilize X, Y, and Z. If we need a crane, um, who's going to pay for it? Uh, the operations officer is the people who are running the hospital and certainly information management are the people who are communicating uh, perhaps with the media or families uh, regarding patient information, hospital data, and so forth. The other thing about a uh, mass casualty event in regards to hospitals that you have providers, and these providers, regardless of their specialty, and initials are a provider. And so what we'd like to do is you want to stage, for instance, you know, all of the surgical residents at Vanderbilt will go to a, uh, a particular room and they'll be deployed from there based on the needs of the hospital. If you are a doctor, you are a doctor. You may be an optician or a dermatologist and you may be taking care of people who have minor trauma, fracture care, and what have you. Because in the event of a mass casualty incident, we have to expand our scopes of practices in order to obtain um, uh, more efficient care of the I'm going to talk now about some of the common pitfalls of a disaster response. Perhaps the most likely is communication. And uh, there's a lack of a unified system. If you think about uh, your particular um, hospital or agency, are police, fire, and, and EMS on the same radio frequency? Do they have a common frequency in which they could communicate if they wanted to? If you are a hospital, um, most physicians haven't even picked up a, a, a walkie-talkie, and they feel kind of goofy when they push that button, and they don't know the appropriate way to, to give radio traffic. Um, that's a problem. And it is, for instance, do you have a frequency on which you could talk to uh, the folks who are doing uh, plan operations with logistics and the emergency department? or, or um, uh, flight com or the people who are uh, tracking uh, incoming emergency traffic into the hospital. Relying on a single communication system is absolutely doomed to failure. Uh, cell phones will fail because of power, because of battery, because of over uh, running the uh, network. You'll say, you know, there's no available uh, uh, network at the point in time. Cell, cell phone towers can go down. Please fire an EMS are, as we mentioned, often on different radio frequencies. And the, the not the key to communication, but certainly the plan that one wants to use with, in regards to communication arrays is redundancy, redundancy, redundancy.
When we talk about scene security, you want to protect the response team from a second strike. Now, certainly in a hurricane, this isn't something that's going to happen. We learned this certainly with terrorism. Uh, you know, you don't want to rush in all your assets because if it's a, a terrorist event, you can have a set a device and result in a, a lot of uh, additional injuries. Um, we had a... Um, I was at a meeting once with an emergency planner was saying, well, should we deploy a, a forward group from, from our hospital in, we're doing a disaster planning situation uh, to provide field care? And one of the concerns was, well, first of all, if there was a second device, we've deployed, you know, assets and personnel forward and they would be at risk. And second of all, of these, you know, hospital people, how many have actually worked in an austere field environment? Let the field personnel do what they do best, uh, which is uh, field care. You want to be able to provide adequate ingress and egress of rescue workers and victims unaccovered by onlookers of the disaster. What does that mean? You need clear paths into the zone that you're working and clear paths out of the zone that you're working. Failure to do that can result in in additional injuries, put your personnel and your equipment at risk. And you really want to uh, minimize the onlookers of the disaster. And it's certainly a major role of security. You want to protect and assist in securing the scene and uh, as well as potential physical evidence if you're dealing with something that could be a potential uh, crime scene uh, or a disaster. Excuse me, a disaster, but an act of terrorism. We're focusing a little bit more on a hurricane because there's a hurricane coming to landfall in the southern United States now. Now, the other problem as far as security is that in, in a hospital is you want to provide a zone of perimeter around your hospital. It's been well established that you look at the way people come to hospitals following a disaster. They come in these initial waves, and the initial wave that people typically overwhelm the hospital is the first wave, and they're basically people who are delivering themselves. They're walking to the hospital to need help. Well, think about the type of people who are walking to a hospital who need help. They're not going to be your most critically injured patients. We've learned a lot from the Israelis about how to deal with this, is that if you have a sign that says emergency room, those people are going to go there. And those are the people who are going to self uh, uh, bring themselves to the emergency room are not particularly the people who may need an emergency room under that particular circumstance. So you may need to be able to direct these people um, uh, to another area where you're providing more ambulatory, you know, scratch, laceration, minor injury uh, type of care and directing them away from your emergency department so you have an adequate ingress of ambulances bringing the critically injured as well as an egress of ambulances so they can get uh, out uh, of the scene uh, of the ambulance. Another major problem is the self-dispatched assistance. Uh, and um, uh, this is uh, the well-meaning uh, trying to run to the scene to provide assistance. Any of us who have worked EMS know how painful it can be when a physician comes up to you and seen of a medical th- uh, crisis in the field or a motor vehicle crash and they tell you they're a doctor and you know, try to give you instructions uh, uh, how to take care of the patient. There's very few physicians that are qualified to provide that kind of assistance in a pre-hospital setting. I said this as a paramedic and I said this as a physician. Aristotle said the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And it's certainly the case when we think about self-dispatched uh, help. Um, um, uh, there were deaths um, uh, at the Oklahoma City uh, bombing uh, from healthcare providers uh, who self-dispatched themselves to provide help uh, at the collapsed building. Um, intentions were good. Uh, unfortunately, um, the um, results were tragic. And the well intention often serve only to further complicate and confuse a potentially already chaotic situation.
Supplies and equipment, we've already mentioned to some degree that particularly in regards to hospitals, uh, most hospital inventories are on a uh, as-needed uh, or just-in-time uh, type of inventory where they don't maintain days and days and days of essential supplies. They de- maintain typically hours or 24 or 36 hours, and that way they don't invest huge amounts of capital in inventory sitting on a shelf. Well, this could create a potential problem in regards to a mass casualty incident where they may need, uh, they may be without assistance for 96 hours, uh, but yet are carrying for 10 times the volume they do on a normal uh, daily operation. There are strategic caches uh, around the country, but again, those are not going to be immediately available to somebody following a natural disaster like a hurricane uh, or uh, even in uh, something uh, in a terrorist attack. So therefore, strategic stockpiles in your hospital may be something uh, to consider and plan. Uh, and it's, we're not talking about elaborate, uh, um, sexy, expensive materials and medications, but we're talking about very basic dressing and splinting supplies. Interaction with the media. And I, I think uh, the media really gets a unfair, um, uh, an unfair uh, perception in these mass casualty incidents. If we go back and look at Katrina, uh, when we really needed people to know that um, uh, Charity Hospital uh, was with patients and with medical staff. At that point in time, following it, the media and the government were under the impression that um, Charity Hospital was evacuated. Uh, and this was what the media was told by by very prominent uh, government officials. Dr. McSwain, whose dispatches are going to follow this podcast, called uh, a colleague and myself, uh, uh, Mr. Will Chaplow, and, and uh, Dr. McSwain and I were able to actually talk to Dr. McSwain in New Orleans, in his office in uh, Tulane. And he told us, no, the media reports are wrong. There are hundreds of patients here and hundreds of staff, and we need assistance. We were able to work with the media and get that message out. And it was by partnering and collaborating with the media uh, that we were able to get Charity Hospital evacuated. Um, I will never forget uh, an image following Katrina of Geraldo Rivera down at the convention center uh, with hundreds of uh, uh, evacuees without food and water and him holding up a child uh, who was just dirty and hungry and thirsty, didn't have any uh, essential um, uh, creature comforts. I found this profound because... um, up to the day before Katrina hit New Orleans, there was a large EMS meeting, EMS Expo, and um, was in that same convention center. And there was millions of dollars of EMS supplies in the convention center uh, prior to the hurricane. And all of those vendors got those materials out of New Orleans as quickly as they could. And uh, I was uh, sitting in a meeting uh, the morning of the, the day before the hurricane hit. The media was able to have a live um, uh, morning show, an evening show from the uh, convention center, but for some reason we weren't able to get rescue supplies there, which was which was interesting. The other thing you could do is partnering the media is you know you can meet with them and stage tell them where you want them to go. If you are a hospital, for instance, you may have hundreds of people coming to your hospital. How do you get out where the families are going to come looking for them? Where should the families go? Do you need blood? Do you need donations? Do you need this or that? Do you need additional shifts to come in and work? Do you want to call in your, off, your off-duty personnel? Or if people are at home, call in and say, gee, I want to come to work. And you say, no, 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 not yet. Come tomorrow because we need to sustain this operation. How do you get that message out? And certainly the media is one way of doing that. So use them as an asset. 
And then there's the issue of preparedness, which I think we've talked about. But again, you would have realistic disaster drills and table exercises. You really want to get a sense of your surge capacity. We talked about the various surges that we get following a mass casualty incident. And we look at the Madrid bombings in 2004. Freiburg wrote about this in Critical Care 2005. 95% of the victims um, were not injured. Those with life-threatening injuries die quickly at the scene. Triage errors increase loss of life, and they really misuse resources. And when you're dealing with a mass casualty event, you have to, you know, on a daily situation, we basically have unlimited resources for an in particular patient. So a patient may come into our trauma bays, we do X, Y, and Z, we move the earth, uh, but when we're faced with 100 victims, what do we do? And our triage schemes have to change because we have to realize that we have to provide the greatest good for the greatest number of patients. Things that we do that are heroic on, Mon- on an ordinarily Monday or Tuesday, we might not be doing them in the event of a mass casualty incident because we have profoundly limited supplies and uh, large numbers of patients. There are different types of triage mechanisms. There's start triage and there's salt triage. Um, those of us in PhD Lewis have, have debated back and forth. Uh, there isn't a, a uniformly accepted one, but the basic triage uh, uh, mechanisms are, are pretty um, straightforward in that you have patients that are expected. When somebody is expected, it means it it is the opinion of the provider that they're more likely to die, that they have a high likelihood of dying. And therefore, when you're facing 100 victims, taking, putting unlimited resources in an expected patient is not a good allocation of those resources. Somebody who's immediate is somebody who requires immediate care. Delayed is somebody who have, may have perhaps more minor injuries. So the things we're looking at when we're doing initial triages is the patient breathing. Are they able to um, um, manage their own airway? Are they breathing faster than 30 times a minute? We're talking for adults now. There's separate triage criteria. They're very similar to these for children. Does the patient have a pulse? And if they have a pulse, can they follow commands? And you take these very simple questions and you apply them to a triage scheme, and it says this patient's a green tag, a red tag, a yellow tag, or a black tag. And that means how quickly we need to get them to more skilled providers. Let's look again at what were the questions that the triage officer has to ask. Is the patient breathing? If they're not breathing, I position their airway. And now that they've I positioned their airway, are they breathing? Okay, that's pretty straightforward. Is their respiratory rate greater than 30? Okay, I need to be able to count to do that and have a watch. Do they have a radial pulse? Well, what do I need to know? I need to know where the radial pulse is, and I need to be able to count that. Actually, I don't even need to count that. I just need to know where do they have a radial pulse. Start triage doesn't even ask what the heart rate is. And do they follow commands? And I don't mean lie still, don't move. I mean, you know, show me two fingers, pick up your head, squeeze my hand. So, again, can they breathe? Are they breathing more or less than 30 times a minute? Do you have a pulse? Can you follow commands? Four very simple things. It is ridiculous to assume that the only person qualified to do triage for all of these patients is perhaps a a physician for the emergency department or a trauma surgeon. More often than not, it's typically somebody who is the head of emergency medicine or the head of trauma uh, or uh, chief medical officer or somebody who says, I have to do triage. Why? Because if you're an emergency physician, you could do all kinds of cool things. If you're a trauma surgeon, you could do all kinds of cool things. You can innovate, put in chest tubes, start intraosseous lines, give patients blood, take out their spleens, uh, 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 reduce their fractures, 
all kinds of things that are not easily translatable skills. But certainly being able to ask these four questions is something well within the scope of practice of a paramedic or a pre-hospital provider. And that's really who should be doing this initial triage. Is somebody not that has 15 initials behind their name, but somebody who can answer these four questions effectively and take that higher asset and deploy it in a much better position. Uh, I have... Um, privilege of uh, being able to go to business school this year. And one of the things I've learned in business school and healthcare management is that to create wealth, you take an asset and move it from a low utilizer, a low uh, um, uh, asset to a higher asset. And when you do that, you're creating wealth. In this situation where we have limited resources, we need to maximize those by taking low utilized assets and putting them in a higher role. And that would be not for a physician to be doing the initial triage. Some common uh, pitfalls in the evacuation of victims, avoid over-triage, avoid under-triage. And triage systems can be fluid and beware of the geographic effect. And what the geographic effect is, we saw this with a, a disaster in Japan where people go to the closest hospital. And that closest hospital could be the trauma center. And, it, and people who have minor injuries don't need to go to the closest hospital. They might be able to more effectively go to a hospital across town and save the higher capacity or save your capacity of your closer, perhaps, trauma center to deal with the more critically injured. And that's called the geographic effect. Now, once they're at the hospital or once they're at your field hospital, keep in mind, triage occurs outside the hospital. Keep in mind, we said about who should do the triage. Treatment should occur inside the hospital. If you're a physician, you want to refrain from going to the emergency department or the scene. You have a duty station or you have a labor pool, and you should go there until you're told where your skill set is best utilized. If you have a, a, a hospital emergency department and you've got several hundred physicians and nurses and they all rush to the emergency department to help, you're not going to be able to have enough room to move the patients from one room to another. And again, we talked about unidirectional flow of patients. When they come in the door, they get triaged, they get evaluated, they go to the next stage and they keep patients moving in a forward direction. You cannot move patients back and forth. You need to really minimize your radiologic and laboratory studies. Not everybody needs a chest x-ray. Not everybody needs a CBC. Do what you need to do. Move the patients along. Keep an idea, the idea of the Henry Ford assembly line. The patient moves. You do not. Okay? You, you have a particular role. Your job is to make sure the airways are secured. If you are the uh, innovating robot, innovate the patient, move them down the line. That is a very basic introductory primer on some ideas behind mass casualty incidents. Uh, the majority of this information was taken from uh, the pre-hospital trauma life support textbook, 6th edition. As I've mentioned, following uh, this podcast, I'm going to start um, uh, putting up podcasts from Dr. Norman McSwain. He is the uh, editor-in-chief and uh, basically the, the grandfather of PHDLS. He is a professor of surgery at Tulane, and uh, uh, he has, uh, was um, manned the ship at Charity Hospital during Katrina, and he will be sending me podcasts as long as he's able to um, during uh, Katrina and try to apply what we've talked about in this podcast in regards to preparedness and so forth and what he's telling us should be interesting. You've been listening to the podcast Surgery IC Rounds, also linked with PHTLS podcast. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, and I'm director of the Burn Center there. Thank you. Have a good day.